Here we go. The application is, you can't change how anybody else loves, but you can change how you love. And you can pray for others to be changed in their love. That's what we have to have in the church. It's what Jesus said was how unbelievers would know that we are his disciples, that we love one another. So, simple application from the whole weekend. You go forth and love. I'm sure you sit around wondering what the most searched phrases are on Google. So I'll tell you, since you don't know. The most searched phrase in the last three years on Google.com is, what is love? Now, you can possibly imagine all the horrible, sinful permutations that that takes, but it is a thought that we all think about, we struggle with. It's a thought that uh, some think that love is the topic that has been most written on by in literature, in all of human history. Opinions abound as to the nature of true love. I want to very quickly narrow our purposes here, though, narrow what we're talking about this evening. And in this conference, specifically, we're talking about love that regenerate believers in Jesus Christ, those who've come to faith in Christ by grace through faith alone, the love that born-again Christians can express toward God and toward fellow believers. We're not talking about love in general. We're talking about the love that flows through the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we want to focus our thoughts on. I want to just start with a brief survey of how love is expressed in the New Testament. Alex will be in the New Testament tomorrow, and so we'll be in the Old Testament tonight. But I want to just start in the New Testament Just a brief survey. Loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you is how we express love. We express love by loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love our neighbors as ourselves. We see the pity of Christ for a rich young ruler who wouldn't give up his possessions to follow Christ. He loved him. We see loving God as a result of having sins forgiven. We see that it's God's love that brought Christ to the earth. We see the love of the Father toward the Son. We see the love of the Son toward the Father. We see Jesus on earth with his specific affection toward individuals who are named Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He loved them. We see that God's love was shown to us while we were still sinners. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. We see that love is to be genuine. Brotherly affection is to be real. It's not a hypocritical act where you smile in front of the believer and you frown when he turns around. We see in the New Testament that Christians owe each other love. It's a debt that we have to one another through Christ. We're to express love by being sensitive to personal preference issues with one another. We're to build one another up in love. 1 Corinthians 13, we see that love is patient, it's kind, it's humble, it's optimistic, it's long-suffering, and all the wonderful aspects that we have of love in that chapter. Love is the standard for how all things are to be done. All things are to be done, as Paul said, in love. Love is what motivates us to immediately forgive the repentant brother. Love is that which is to control us. Love for one another is how the church knows, or how the world knows, rather, that we belong to the church, that we are in Christ. Love for fellow believers, get this, validates your salvation, 12 times in 1 John, if you're in Christ, you love the brethren. If you're in Christ, you love the brethren. Love is what motivates us to serve one another. It's the first fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5. A mature believer in Ephesians 3.17 is said to be, quote, rooted and grounded in love. We're to bear with one another in love. We're to be patient with one another in love. We're to speak the truth in love. Philippians 4 tells us that love even guides how we're supposed to think, what the thoughts are that go in our mind. Love is the reputation of a healthy church. Lack of love is the reputation of a church on probation. We see in the Bible that ministry is a labor of love. Love is frequently placed in the trio of faith, hope, and love. We're told to abound in love for one another. We love naturally because the Spirit of God flows through us, and yet we're to work at it as well. We're to put forth effort. Love is what shepherds are to have for the church and what the church is to have for her shepherds. A church that is loving as a body is a joy and a delight, and we see that in the New Testament, a church that is not loving as a body is a burden and a heartbreak. So it's not a small topic we're talking about here. And that's just a little piece of what the New Testament states. Interestingly, here at Grace Bible Church, we just 
finished a study through the book of Philemon, we looked at the importance and the mandate of forgiving one another, that we emulate Christ by forgiving and loving one another with the highest possible standard of love, forgiving as God has forgiven us. Now, you've tasted the love of Christ in salvation. You've been regenerated in Jesus Christ. In short, of anyone here who may have had a false salvation experience, and and we don't ever want to deny that possibility, every one of us recognizes in ourselves, and maybe our spouses help us recognize that we have a need to be more loving. We know, we understand ourselves, we know where we fall short, we know how our best intentions aren't matched by our thoughts and by our actions. We see how those that we say we love the most are the ones that we often treat the worst and love the least. The irony there for us. Well, I'm sort of the warm-up for Alexander tomorrow. He's going to be dealing specifically with the love of the church, cultivating, developing love to a higher degree in our local churches So what I want to do this evening is just sort of get our hearts percolating on the topic, to be thinking about love. I need it. You need it. And so what I want to do is just elevate our thinking and understand how we could examine the character of God as a loving God. The character of God is the concrete. It's the foundation. It's the pillar that we stand on, how we build our thoughts, our deeds, the words of our lives. If we build on the character of God, then we know how to love. If we don't understand the character of God, then we don't know how to love. And so what we want to do is just saturate our hearts in the person of God this evening and really think about him and create in us a more natural response of love. Let me put it this way. If you are intimately intimately familiar with how God loves and what his character is, we more naturally will emulate that and imitate him. So let's advance our natural response to love. Let's squelch our sinful desires of anger and resentment and bitterness. All I want to do tonight, very simply, is build a theology of love. Let's just build a theology based on God's character. So if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 33, and we'll begin in verse 17. Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 17. What I'd like to do is just try to elevate our understanding of the foundation of God's love that God's love changes our hearts and our minds, and if we understand how he loves, it's going to change how we love. So here's the roadmap. I have a two-part plan. I want to look at the character of God, and then we want to look at the character of God's love. We might put it this way, look at the foundation, which is the character of God, and the result, the character of God's love. Exodus thirty-three seventeen. The character of God is directly responsible for how he loves. He loves because of who he is. And so we look at the character first. The character of God is directly responsible for how he loves. Therefore, the character of God has to be directly responsible for how we love. Look, you can't love based on your character, right? What happens when you do that? You sin. But if we love based on God's character, then we transcend our own sin and we see him working through us. Exodus 33. I want to just sort of work our way into this story If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is the greatest story in the Old Testament in many ways. The people of Israel have been uh, delivered from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. God brought them to Mount Sinai where he's established a covenant with them. They will be his nation. He will be their God. He will protect them and love them and they will obey his law. God brought Moses up to Mount Sinai to receive a written copy of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. But you know the story, as the people are waiting for Moses, they quickly turned away from the Lord and they built a golden calf to worship and they started just reveling in sinful debauchery. Well, God told Moses that the people had corrupted corrupted themselves and he said to Moses, he said, leave me alone so I can destroy this people and I will make you into a great nation. I'm so glad it wasn't me because I got to confess, I might have said, you know, I could start over here. Those guys are kind of, you know, not a lot of fun to be around. They're down there with the golden calf. Thankfully, it wasn't me. It was a greater man, Moses. He cried out to God. And he cried out on behalf of Israel. And he said, essentially, no, may it never be. Remember your promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. So the Lord relented. He didn't destroy the people. Moses came down from the mountain and saw the wickedness of the people and he smashed the two tablets of the covenant. I remember reading that as a little kid and thinking, well, he's having a big fit and his mom wasn't there to get him in trouble. 
you know, he's just angry. No, what he was doing was the people violated the covenant and he tore it up. But when it's made of stone, you can't tear it. So you have to smash it. They violated the covenant. Well, the Lord disciplined the people severely. He made them drink water tainted with the powder of the ground up golden calf and faithful Levites who were present. They killed 3,000 men. It was a sad day. God told Moses to depart to the promised land of Canaan where they were to conquer the nations living there. But then God said something that was heartbreaking. He said, I will send an angel with you, but I will not go with you. For you are a stiff-necked people and I may consume you on the way. Exodus 33 tells us that the people mourned. They, they, They wept. It was a disastrous word from God. And so Moses cried out to God. He said, please, let us be your nation. Please go with us. And he pled with God. Well, verse 14 of chapter 33, God says, yes, I will go with you. But here's the interesting thing. It's like Moses didn't even hear the answer because in verses 15 and 16, Moses says again, please be with us, go with us. And his reasoning is, is that without God's presence, Israel will be no different than any other nation who's trying to survive on its own power. God would not receive any glory that Israel was created to give him. And in verse 17, where we start our text, God says yes again. But again, it's as if Moses didn't hear God say yes two times before. And he still needs assurance. So Moses says in verse 18, please show me your glory. He needed guarantees. He needed to know that the love of God would go with them. So let's read this from verse 17, and we'll go all the way through chapter 34, verse 9, but we'll focus our attention primarily in in chapter 33 and in chapter 34, verse 6. Beginning in chapter 33, verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the, let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So, let's build a theology of love. Let's examine the character of God. Let's examine the character of God's love. To look at the character of God, I want to just examine five characteristics of his love, which kind of lay a foundation for us, help us to understand how he loves. So we'll just look at his character. Now, we certainly could just make this really easy and skip to 1 John 4, which states very succinctly, God is love. What I want to do tonight, though, is try to examine why God is love. What is it about him that makes him love in a very inadequate fashion? Obviously, we can't really describe God, but we can try So the first characteristic of God, the first character trait of God is his sovereign favor. 
the sovereign favor of God. Now Moses has made a request, and the request is for the presence of God to go with Israel. And he has a logical reason. Verse 16 is his reason. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord gives the reason that he's answering the request of Moses. He gives his, why, why he's given a yes. He says, you have found favor in my sight. It's something that I've given to you. It's almost as if God is saying, since your appeal for my presence is grounded in the fact that I am pleased with you, and since I'm the one who said I'm pleased with you in the first place, I can go with that. And so Moses, in effect, almost argued with God, basing his argument on what God said. It's a wonderful argument. He, it was, he was very brave. He said, I will honor your request. But at the end of verse 17, God says something very personal to Moses, something that we would love to hear ourselves. He says, I know you by name. He had a very special relationship with Moses. God treated Moses as one who was familiar, one who was close, What does it mean to know him by name? It means I've recognized you as mine. I've recognized you as one that I've chosen. You are the one I've called to carry out my will. For God to say that he knows Moses' name, it says relationship, it says ownership, it says fidelity. Reminds me of what God told Israel in Isaiah 43.1, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. There's ownership involved with knowing his name. I did a little research. I was wondering, why is it that Moses received favor from the Lord? So I thought I'd look. To my knowledge, there's no record of God ever giving a reason for choosing Moses. He was Moses survived the infanticide of Pharaoh of Egypt. Eventually, he was in Midian as a shepherd. He's just minding his own business, keeping the sheep. And God appeared to him in the midst of a burning bush. But there's no reason given. God just decided. He just said, you're my man. Well, even more clearly, we see the sovereignty of God in giving favor in verse 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I think we might say this, that the sovereign favor of God is very clearly a one-sided decision on his part, that there wasn't another party involved here. Moses reminded Israel in Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 7 rather, he said to Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Now, this is very important. He used this phrase, set his love on you. You know what that means? It means to make a decision to take one thing and glue it to another. God simply made a decision. He chose. This one-sided decision was the standard of love that Jesus set for us in Luke chapter 6. You remember this, beginning in verse 32. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, listen to this, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. By the way, this helps us understand the concept theologically of sovereign favor, the the sovereign choice of God toward us in salvation. If you're a young single man here, I I would urge you to go do an experiment. Go find a young lady somewhere in the mall, and just go up to her and say, I have decided that you love me. <laughs> Boom! You're going to be down for the count. We don't decide that somebody else loves us. We don't go to God and say, I have decided that you will show me favor. The showing of favor by God is a one-sided decision on his part. We don't manipulate that. We can't coerce that. God says, I will be gracious and compassionate 
if it pleases me, when it pleases me, to whom it pleases me, and for the reason that pleases me. And he doesn't bother to tell us why, because it is his sovereign favor. Noah found favor with God. Moses found favor with God. We have found favor with God. One question I'd love to get answered someday in heaven is why? Why? Because we don't know. First character trait of God is the sovereign favor of God. Let's look also at the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Beginning in verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now, Moses has a request, and there's desperation in his plea. We could translate verse 18, not just please show me your glory, but we could translate, oh, please show me your glory. You remember when your kids are real little and they're begging for something and they think that if they raise their voice really high and they say please, please, please a lot? Well, for some of you, it may have worked. But for us, it didn't work. But Moses is doing this. He's desperate. Please show me your glory. Glory, it speaks in the Old Testament of something weighty, something honored, something that is big. 45 times in the Old Testament, it speaks of a visible manifestation of God, the assurance to, of his intent to dwell with his people. So he would, he would manifest himself. It speaks of God's beauty, his magnificence, his radiance, his rapture. We think of Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 43, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east and Ezekiel 44, I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord and I fell on my face. But I want to ask a question. What was it specifically that Moses was asking for? And remember the context. Israel is on the brink of destruction. Moses is shaken. God has just said he's willing to wipe out Israel. That would shake you to your boots. He's willing to just start over with Moses. Now, what has Moses seen? He's seen a burning bush. He's seen a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. He's seen thunderbolts. He's seen plagues. He's seen, I mean, the Red Sea parting. He's seen God decimating Pharaoh's army. Was Moses just asking for more of this? Arguably, Moses saw more of God's glory than any man ever has. Was he looking for this? I don't think Moses was looking for a bigger light and fireworks show. I don't think he was looking for God to outdo himself somehow with something bigger. I think what this was was a request for the confirmation of the character of God. A request for comfort that God intends to be with them. This is Moses saying, I need something. I need something in writing. I need something to show me that you will in fact go with us. Moses was asking to gaze at the glory of God, but I think the purpose was to receive the comfort of God's character. So God's answer is in accordance with Moses' request. He's not going to give him a bigger show. You know how he's going to show him his glory? He says, I will show you my goodness. I will show you my goodness. So the emphasis isn't on God visually manifesting himself. The emphasis is on God's character. We've seen this in Job as well. You're familiar with this. Job 38 through 41, the biggest speech in the Bible from God. God is rebuking Job for questioning him. He gives the case for his character, his strength, his wisdom, his sovereignty. And Job, after he comes to his senses and understands this, listen to what he says after hearing words from God. Job 42.5 says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job saw the glory of God through the description, the verbal description of his character. Moses would see the glory of God, but it would be through the words that God would speak to him in chapter 34. The goodness of God is such an integral part of his character, such a, such a firm foundation for us. I think we could even say that God's goodness is the summary of all of his attributes, that all of that God is put together is his goodness. He's loving, he's merciful, he's kind, he's just, he's righteous. He's unchanging, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnisapient, meaning he's all wise, he's sovereign, he's true. The sum of all that God is gets packaged up in one phrase, God is good. And we take it one step further, there's no other creature like God. There's no one else that is good like him. There's, he is totally set apart, he's totally different, he's totally other. And so ultimately we go even a step higher we say that his goodness is described by one term, that he is holy. 
He is above all. God's goodness is important to us because apart from his goodness, apart from how he reveals his goodness in scripture, let me ask you a question. How would you know what is good and what isn't? We would have no standard to know whatsoever. Unless we see everything through the lens of the goodness of God, we don't know what good is. And if we don't know what good is, you cannot love. So our love has to be based in his goodness. In 1933, a young woman named Velna Leiden was on a long road trip with some companions. And she had two things in common with these young ladies that she was with. Number one, they loved the Lord. And number two, they were bored out of their skulls. Now, this is the days before electronics, before air conditioning, before anything to help this trip be a little bit more pleasant. So Velna made up a little tune. She created the first verse, and then her friends would go around and create verses. You probably recognize this tune. The first verse she made up was, God is so good, God is so good, God is so good, he's so good to me. One of her friends said, God answers prayer, God answers prayer. And then the next friend said, he cares for me. Now we started getting really self-focused here and talking about me, me, me. The next verse, I love him so, I love him so. Well, you're trying to. But then verse five connects the goodness of God with our response. I'll do his will, I'll do his will, I'll do his will. He's so good to me. That's how the goodness of God, we receive it, we recognize it, and we act on it. That's the proper response to God's goodness. We see his sovereign favor. We see the goodness of God. We also see the trustworthiness of God. The trustworthiness of God. Verse 19 continues, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. Literally in Hebrew, I will proclaim before you by name the Lord, Yahweh. If you see in your Bible, the Lord in all capitals, that means that in Hebrew it is his name. It is Yahweh. God is giving Moses a preview. He's saying, here's what's about to happen. I'm going to proclaim to you my very character by name. And in fact, in 34, verse 6, when God makes the official proclamation, he says, the Lord, the Lord, God, Yahweh, Yahweh, El. It's the only time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, that that formula is used. It's the character of God wrapped up in his name. Yahweh is his, El, his covenant name. It's the name described by God himself by a similar Hebrew term, I am who I am. That's not his name. That's a description of his name. For God to proclaim his name and to say it twice, which is unique only to this passage, it is to proclaim his faithfulness. It's to proclaim that his name functions like an appearance of the glory of God. Moses said, show me your glory. So God did the greatest thing he could do. He didn't send up fireworks. He didn't do a big pillar of cloud or fire or anything else. He said, here's my name and I'll say it twice. That is the glory of God. He is eternally existent. His name speaks of the perfection of his character, the uprightness of his dealings, the affirmation of his trustworthiness. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. the psalmist says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Jeremiah ten six. there is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Of course, you're familiar with Psalm 138, verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God wants Moses to pause, to time out and say, think on nothing else, think on my name. And then you'll know how trustworthy I am. He's full of characters, full of faithfulness. In purely human terms, we understand the value of a name, right? Right? Our names represent our deeds. They represent our character. Uh, Advertising companies have been using this for years. You can hear this on the radio or on the internet. You go to so-and-so, the most trusted name in news, right? Or the most trusted name in banking. And they say this over and over again. They don't give you a reason it's the most trusted name. They just say it. Well, I'm backing up just a little bit. In Exodus 3, when Moses asked God, If I come to the people of Israel, this is before the Exodus, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's the description of his name. Then God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, 
the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Exodus 3 wasn't the first time that God revealed his name. wasn't the first time he revealed his character. Adam's son, Seth, had a son named Enosh, and Enosh served as sort of a marker as the beginning of the time when his family and others around him began to worship God. Genesis 4.26, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Early on in history, Noah knew God's character. Noah knew God's name. Genesis 9.26, He also said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Genesis 12, Abram knew the name of Yahweh. He called upon the name of Yahweh. God himself mentioned his own name when he spoke directly to Abraham. In Genesis 18, verses 13 and 14, he said, The Lord, Yahweh, said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for Yahweh, for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. and You shall have a son. To know the name of God was to know his character. It was to believe his character, believe that he's faithful. Let me put it this way, to know his name and to receive his name was to say, I acknowledge that I must worship you. You are the only true God. He's faithful, he's eternal, he's trustworthy. We peek over to the New Testament for a moment. Jesus said in John 5, 43, he said, I have come in my father's name. Now we understand that that means he came representing his father, but it's not just that. He also came in the character and in the likeness and in the perfection of his father. I have come in the character of who my father is. The love of God is built on the foundation of the character of his name. He said to Moses, and can you imagine being here for this moment? God himself saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, El, the Lord, the Lord, God. You know what this is? This is God in These terms, in terms Moses can understand, taking a pen and saying, I will sign my name to a promise to be with you. And he signs his name to the contract. He intends to be faithful according to the trustworthiness of his character. God is trustworthy. We see another character trait of God, the grace of God. The grace of God. How many of you here attend a church with the word grace in it? Yeah, there we go. That's what we're about, right? We're about grace. So it's a wonderful topic for us. Verse 19, God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, is this some sort of emotionless kind of distant declaration? I am sovereign. You will do what I say and like it. Is it that distance? No, it's not. The point here was not that God was just asserting his sovereignty. He's asserting his compassion and his care, his grace. The Hebrew word for be gracious, it's a heartfelt response. It's an emotional response by somebody who has much when they see somebody who has nothing. And it's a desire, it's a deep heartfelt response. It's the response you have in your gut when you see a child who's hungry. And he says, I will have mercy. This is a specific Hebrew verb form. And it talks about a deep inward feeling of compassion. It's an emotional feeling. It's not just that I won't withhold or that I won't give you punishment that you deserve. It's that not only will I withhold punishment, but I love you and I care about you. And I have a, I have a gut that just longs to be with you. I know that many of you Especially as you get older, you think about heaven more and you long to be in heaven. But can I tell you this? God longs for you to be there even more than you long to be there because he's merciful, he's gracious. Speaks of a deep love rooted in relationship, meaning like a father to a son. We think of Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He's a compassionate father. He's not distant. Through Christ, he has, he has closed the gap. He loves those whom he's sovereignly chosen to love. He's always available. He's never busy. He's always seeking our good and his glory. And you think about this, God is infinitely holy. He is unapproachable in human terms. And yet his compassion, his mercy, his grace allows him to deal with us in our frailty, in our, in our weakness, to run boldly to the throne of grace. 
we can't even get an appointment with the governor of California, but we can run to the creator of the universe anytime we want. He's full of tender sympathy for the suffering and misery of his people. You know, the grace of God is highlighted from Genesis to Revelation. It is a doctrine that if you were to get your Bible wet and, and wring it out, grace would just be everywhere. It's the theological basis for God's love toward us. And somebody asks you the question, why is, how is Christianity different than every other religion? You can sum it up in that one word. Well, grace. Grace makes us different. We're totally distinct from every religion. The message of grace with Christ is the ultimate outworking, the ultimate revelation of the grace of God, that he is the glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Multiple places, the New Testament tells us that we're saved by grace. Grace is the characteristic of God that doesn't just trickle out favor, it sprays favor and mercy and right standing and forgiveness like a fire hose, all from one divine source. In fact, Romans 5.15 says that, quote, the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded. Literally means it overflowed. It went everywhere. Grace is unending. I heard an illustration of the grace of God once left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. The preacher said, the grace of God is like when we feed a hungry man who has no money. Eh, all right. I don't think so. I think the grace of God is so over the top that when we try to use a human illustration, it breaks down every time. It becomes clear that God was willing to extend grace in ways that we can't, that we won't, that we can't possibly do. So let's try it again. Is grace like feeding a hungry man? Well, sort of. But the illustration, it breaks down again. If we're going to try to get close to God's grace, grace says that this hungry man is hungry because he's waiting for his last meal on death row. And you came in, grace says that you brought your son and you left your son in that cell and you freed this man. Not only did you leave your son to die instead of this man, grace says that while you're waiting for your son to die, you told him, by the way, criminal, I'm building you a new house and I'm giving you a new heart so that you'll never want to do these wicked things again. And I'm arranging you for you to live forever in the house I'm building. The illustration doesn't hold up. You can't illustrate grace in human terms. God's grace is ridiculously bigger than we could ever picture. But it is the theological framework and standard. It's the basis for how we love one another. When we're thinking about extending grace to each other, here's some words I want to put in your mind. This is how we ought to extend grace. Overflowing, abundant, extravagant, lavish, How about rich? How about unrestrained? How about generous? How about limitless? How about excessive? Because that's how God's grace is with us. And finally, we have the sovereign favor of God, the goodness of God, the trustworthiness of God, the grace of God. Final character trait, the kindness of God. Verse 20, the kindness of God. But he said... You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. To see the essence of Yahweh is deadly. To see the face of God means you're experiencing the wrath of God, essentially. We see this in Isaiah 6. Isaiah was scared to death. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's conclusion, after thinking he had seen the face of God, even though it was just a manifestation, his conclusion was, I'm about to die. I'm about to experience the wrath of God because I saw him. God tells Moses, you cannot see my face. Now, I want to use a vocal inflection to help us understand this. This was not a prohibition. This was kindness. He didn't say, you cannot see my face. He said, Moses, you can't see my face because if you do, you'll die. What he's saying is, remember the context. God was about to destroy the nation. God is saying, okay, I will not show you my face. I will not show Israel my face. I won't destroy the nation. Instead, I will be merciful. I'll be kind. My face shall not be seen. That's cause for glory. That's cause for celebration. And then he says how the encounter will happen. Verse 21, 
And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Israel is about to face enemies bigger and stronger than they've ever seen before. Moses has asked repeatedly, God, will you be with us? God, will you be with us? God, will you be with us? And God has answered repeatedly. And so now he answers, essentially saying, let me show you how I will be kind to you. What does he do? He says, there's a place by me where you shall stand on a rock. Can you think of a more safe place to be to stand on a rock next to God? That's safe. That's kindness. I will cover you with my hand and you'll see my back. Remember what his back is? It's his goodness. It's his goodness. Do you notice the anthropomorphisms here? The hand, the back, the face of God all put here. Obviously, God doesn't have a physical body. He is spirit. But what God is doing is he's relating to Moses in very intimate and personal terms. He's saying, I'll cover you with my hand. You won't see my face. You'll see my back. I am being on a level where you can understand. God is describing himself in a way that he says, basically, I will be kind to you. God is so tender. God's expressing such tenderness and care. You know, I think about Psalm 103, 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We put it this way. God remembers that we break easily. He remembers that we're tender. He remembers that we're fragile. The next verse, Psalm 103, 15 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. And then he gives the comfort of God's kindness in verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. God knows that you're breakable. He knows that you're fragile. He knows that you tear easily. He has shown you sovereign favor. He's shown you his goodness, his trustworthiness, his goodness, and his kindness. Well, that's the character of God. That's our foundation. That's the concrete that we stand on. This helps explain why God is love. Well, how does this work itself out in the character of God's love? We've seen the character of God. I want to look at the character of his love. Now, skip ahead with me to Exodus 34, verse 7. We want to just get this out of the way here for a moment. In the middle of his proclamation, God says that he is keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by who, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, we're wading into deep waters here right? These are waters too deep for us as humans to cross where we we cannot and we do not imitate God. We're seeing here forensic or legal justification. That's God's purview. We're seeing his perfect justice. That's, That's his purview. We're seeing his perfect justice and his meeting out of judgment. That's his business. They're deep waters and they're not the realm of our conversation today. But I want to focus our attention on the first part of his proclamation on the character of God's love in verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A young pastor was about to enter his first ministry right out of seminary, and he asked one of his seminary professors, kind of arrogant, he said, uh, How long do you think it'll be before I'm disappointed in this church? And without blinking, the professor said, about as long as it takes them to be disappointed in you. It'll be the same. Paul warned the churches of the region of Galatia, Galatians 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. There are numerous major polls that tell us somewhere in the top five reasons always that a person leaves the church is because of an offense. Either it's a real offense or a supposed offense, like getting your feelings hurt over a preference issue. It's common. Every single one of us here either have left a church because of difficulties or we know those who have. We have had our hearts broken by seeing people who all proclaim a love for Jesus Christ and they can't proclaim a love for one another. And it breaks the heart of the Lord and it breaks our hearts as it should. Well, what's the answer? 
Part of the answer lies in examining the character of God's love. God's love is patient, it's loyal, and it's true. His love is patient, loyal, and true. He's patient. God proclaimed to Moses that he is slow to anger. Now, this is interesting that he says this because God is the only being in the universe with a valid reason to be angry, right? He's angry at sin. The sin of his people dishonors him. It's anger that's rooted in his holiness and his righteousness. He's offended by sin. He's offended by the rebellion of his creatures. God alone has every right to be very quick to anger. When his holiness is violated, he can rightfully be angry over sin, over disobedience. And yet he says he's slow to anger. Ten times in the Old Testament, that exact phrase is used to speak of how patient God is. How patient is he? He's so patient with the wicked who shake their fist at him that he will wait until they repent to become worshipers of God. He'll wait that long. We want God to judge a guy who runs a stop sign in front of us immediately. We want to see that car burst into flames as he goes right by us. I'm I'm glad that God is patient. He was patient with me to wait until I would come to faith. Now, for the believer, his anger and his wrath have been poured out on Christ, right? We understand that. His dealing with our sin and rebellion now is in the form of discipline. And the New Testament characterizes his discipline as loving and patient. It's rooted in our relationship to him as our, as our father. Does the Lord discipline with severity and swiftness every time we sin, though? No, he doesn't. He's patient. He's kind. Guys, how much easier would it be to be holy if every time you said something sinful to your wife, you suddenly had a sore throat and you couldn't talk for a week? Oh, I did it again. But he's not. He, he's, he's patient with us. God is so patient. And I think about the Garden of Eden. Chapter 2, verse 16 of Genesis says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was the proclamation. That's the standard. So Eve, tempted by Satan, she ate the fruit. She gave it to Adam. What happened? Did he take this fruit and take a bite, chew on it for a minute, and suddenly start going down? No, he lived. He lived for hundreds of years. And in fact, because of the curse of sin for what he did, God also promised, you have sinned, but I will send you a savior to pay for your sin. He's so patient, so kind. God's so patient that he's working out redemptive history over a period of thousands of years. I can't fathom that. For the believer in Christ, obviously the reason God is so patient with you is because of the cross. He's ordained the end game. You know why God can be patient with you? Because he knows that he's ordained that the final product that is you is that you will be conformed to the image of his son. So he's willing to wait. And in our case, it doesn't take thousands of years. It just takes a few decades and we'll be there. First Corinthians 13, often called the love chapter, the Holy Spirit inspired that the first characteristic of God-like love is that love is what? patient. Let's talk about patience for a minute. Not just talking about not losing your temper when someone close to you irritates you. Not talking about being willing to wait an extra 10 minutes for somebody who's keeping you waiting. God-like patience is eternal. It, It takes a long view. It sees the best in others. Not just human optimism that sees present qualities that we can judge now, but looks ahead to the future to see the person as they will be when they are just like Christ. That's God-like patience. God-like patience gives others time to grow. It gives them time to change. It gives us an understanding that changes sometimes won't happen in this lifetime. Our job is just to focus on walking with the Lord, giving grace and mercy at every turn, letting God be in charge of when and how he transformed lives. I was talking to an older woman years ago. She and her husband, they loved the Lord but he was prone to great frustration with her. Some of it was his temper. Some of it was that she was frankly a little bit difficult to live with. Sometimes he couldn't deal with it. And every once in a while, same thing would happen. He would say, that's it. He'd go to the bedroom, get his backpack and pack up, throw a couple sandwiches in there and say, I'm gone. I'm out of here. And he'd walk down the road. 
Sometimes an hour later, sometimes three days later, he'd come crawling back up the driveway. This happened over and over and over again. And I asked her, how did you deal with this? What was your, what, what, what was your method? And she said, well, several things. I'll never forget this. She said, I asked the Lord to forgive me for frustrating my husband. I asked the Lord to protect him out on the road. I thanked God for the man that he is. And I thanked God even more for the man that he will become. And then I wait for him. And when he walks in the door, I wrap my arms around him and tell him I love him. How many times have you done that? She said, it doesn't matter. That's patience. God is patient. God's love is loyal. God's love is loyal. This is really kind of the crux of this whole statement here. Verse 6 says, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love, the Hebrew word hesed. Other than the naming of God, hesed may be the most important word in the Old Testament. It's not easily translated into English. It's sometimes translated loyal love or loving kindness. It speaks of unfailing love, of loyalty. Sometimes it's been called God's covenant love. It's his response to his covenant with Israel. I think that's kind of limiting, though. It's, it kind of puts him in the position of being in a, under an obligation. I think there's a broader sense of freedom and initiative in Yahweh's love. It's the difference between I love you because I chose to at one point and I love you because I choose to every day after day after day. There's a little bit of a subtle difference there. God's has said can never be exhausted. It can never run dry. It's based on his character. So it can't ever run out. Psalm 136.1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures until he's tired of you. Is that what it says? No, it endures forever. Once God is committed to you, this is a forever commitment. He binds himself by his own character that you are always his, that you're always in this together. You know, I think one of the greatest losses in professional sports is the element of team loyalty. And that's what made sports fun. And now it's just no fun. Well, this guy's played there 18 whole months, made more money than every person on earth put together, and he's moving on to another team. That's not fun anymore. It used to be that the star players stuck with one team. That was their identity through thick and thin. 20 years ago, you asked a retired professional athlete, who did you play for? And he said simply, this team. Today, you ask a retired athlete, who did you play for? And he has to get out a list and and read it off because he can't remember all the teams. Loyalty doesn't use words like unless or except or until. Loyalty doesn't use those terms. Loyalty and fidelity to one another in the church is based on the fact that God is loyal to us. Our salvation is secured, and not only will we be with him forever, but we will be with each other forever. Let me put it this way. You can either work out your differences now or God can work them out for you in heaven. It's going to be one of the two. There's a strong implication to this. Because God has bound himself in loyal love to us, he's bound himself by implication, by default. We're bound in loyal love to each other. It's there whether you like it or not. It's there whether you have minor doctrinal disagreements or not. It is there. We are bound together. God's love is patient, is loyal. Very similar to being loyal, his love finally is true. In the verse 6, his love is not only abounding in steadfast love, but abounding in faithfulness. Now, we could easily translate this abounding in truth. This word has two primary meanings in the Old Testament. They're both overlapping. They both apply to God. They both apply to his word. The first meaning is that is true, that it's truth. All that God says is true. The Bible is true. His word is true. Truth is the means by which people come to know and serve God. And then the other overlapping meaning, very similar, speaks of his faithfulness. He's reliable. God is stable. It speaks of his faithfulness to us because we are his elect. So what we would just do is put this together and say that God's love is true love. There's nothing false or pretentious about it. When you arrive in heaven, God's not going to roll his eyes and say, well, I guess you can come in. He's eager for you to be there because it's true love. 
It's not just that God's love is some sort of obligation where he's obligating himself. Well, I guess I have to be patient. I guess I have to be loyal because that's according to my character. It's true love. It's real. Now, we're always very careful because we're sinners, we want to delineate that true love is not based in emotion, right? We, we Pastors, we preach this all the time. We preach, sometimes loving actions have nothing to do with your emotions. Can I just tear that up and throw that away for a moment? Because ultimately, true love will involve the whole person. That ultimately, if you're forgiving somebody, if you're reaching out to somebody who has harmed you, who has hurt you, and you're doing it at the level that God does with patience and loyalty and true love, all of a sudden you see this person that 10 minutes earlier or 10 days earlier you thought was the worst thing that ever happened to you, and you see them transformed into the image of Christ himself, and you love that person. And now it's not a sense of upsetness or anger that there's something between you and him. There's grief because you want to be friends and you want to know that true love with that person. That's when you can go to somebody and say, you know what? I don't care if the offense was yours. It was mine. I'm just going to take all the responsibility. What do I have to do to fix this? I'll do anything. That's true love. We love now because we're going to later you know, think about this. How silly would it be for us to sing when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise, but I'm still really mad at you. <laughs> that makes no sense whatsoever. We may as well love now because we will later. And by the way, this true love is based in God's level of rejoicing over us. How does God rejoice over you? Listen to his love for his people, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Listen to God's love. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. You know what exalt means? It's a word that means to dance with joy around something. That's how joyful God is over you. And that's how we're to extend patient love, loyal love, true love in the church, reflective of his glory, to do whatever it takes to exalt over our fellow believers. Our love for one another fails because it's based in our character. Our goal and our striving is to base our love in God's character. And then it won't fail. What did Paul say? Love never fails. Well, my original premise was elevating our understanding of the foundation of God's love changes our hearts and minds and consequently will change how we love, change how we deal with one another. It's the contemplation of God that drives us to love one another. We put it this way, a small God makes for small love, a big God makes for big love. These five character qualities, they keep us on track. I mean, in other words, let me put it this way, when your jaw is dropped at the sovereign favor of God, you can't use it to hurt somebody with your words. When your eyes are looking up to the goodness of God, they can't look down on somebody else. When your hands are lifted in praise to the God who is trustworthy and will keep you for eternity, those hands can't be used to push people away from you when your feet are being used to climb the mountain to the heavenly throne room to thank God for his grace, your feet can't be used to tread others under you and to hurt them. And when your heart is enamored and filled with the kindness of God, it can't be filled with bitterness, anger, jealousy, etc., any sort of sin. And then filled with the contemplation of God, just overwhelming your heart. How do you love naturally? Do you have to go read a bunch of books on how to love? No, you're patient, you're loyal, and you are true and you mean it because your heart's filled with his love. And by the way, we received the answer to Moses' prayer. Moses asked, oh, show me, please, your glory. And when we love as God loves, we can step back and look at that picture and say, snapshot, that is the glory of God right there when we act the way he would act. May we love one another for the sake of the gospel of love. May we love one another for the sake of the elect who are loved. 
May we love one another for the sake of the unbelievers who are watching us and need to see what love is. But most of all, we have to love one another for the sake of the glory of God because God is love. Let's pray and then we'll close in song with Christian. Our Father, we just tried to, in some weak way here, to kind of lay a foundation of love, a foundation based in your character, based on who you are. Lord, it's with um, great eager anticipation that we tomorrow begin to look at how this works itself out practically in the church. Represented here in this room, Lord, are many churches in this area. And we are begging you, we are pleading with you, Lord, to let the love of God just explode and spray forth into every church body. Let there be healing and restoration and forgiveness. Let there be respect for elders and let there be love for the flock. Let there be, Lord, relationships that have been broken come together. Let there be an eagerness to reflect the character of God because it gives you glory And it is a shameful thing for a Christian to hold on to that which is not his to hold, and that is unforgiveness. Help us to love as you have loved us, to reflect the glory of Christ through the grace that we extend to others. We pray these things in his name and for his ultimate glory. Amen.